Howdy folks, you have stumbled once again into Full Contact Canvas, a podcast sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown with my co-host Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media in Los Angeles. Of course, I am Harold Jarbo, aka The Old Hemp Farmer, and we're lucky enough to be speaking with someone who's been a frequent guest here on Full Contact Cannabis, Brad Crafton. How you doing, Brad? Doing great, Jarbo. Man, thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure getting on here and talking to y'all. Well, the last time, Brad, we talked to you, you were working on getting a tan and going to Mississippi to do medical marijuana. Could you kind of just tell us what's Waldo been doing the last few months? <sighs> oh, no problem. Well, Waldo's been trying to figure out where the landing place was because, I mean, you know, the short version is transitioning from a high-flying consultant to the world changing and realizing it's time to settle down. Mississippi legalizing medical cannabis and how they did seemed like a natural fit and, you know, went back home and got a project going pretty quickly. But what we saw is what they passed by they, the people, ended up just not reconciling with the stagnant approach to policy that the government has. And, you know, it's a mixture of anti-cannabis and anti-change. You know, Mississippi's a delicate balance of who earns a good living and who doesn't. And, you know, legalizing medical cannabis through Initiative 65 in a way that would allow anybody to just pull a permit and get into business with very little inhibition to licensure kind of upsets a lot of that. So what happened was the Supreme Court overturned bill the people voted in. You're talking about the Mississippi State Supreme Court. Correct. And uh, there was a lawsuit bought, uh, brought by a mayor of um, the city of Madison, not contesting medical cannabis, but contesting the people's ability to use a ballot initiative as a way to get something on the uh, ballot. It was actually a pretty beautiful loophole. Oh, I'm not anti-cannabis. I'm just anti the people having a voice. And it worked worked like a charm. Supreme Court overturned it. Um, The previous laws put on the ballot in the same way, like eminent domain and things of that nature, they immediately said would be completely unaffected. The overturn or, you know, this decision does not set precedence on other laws who were put in place by the same mechanism like eminent domain, because that would impact businesses, you know. But all y'all people who have started building these cannabis businesses, you're impacted, right? And so what we saw is the legislatures kind of take over the process and slow everything down so they could rework. And essentially, Initiative 65 was very equitable in who could participate in the cannabis business. And all of the tax revenue went to Department of Health. And the legislature was able to work that into a situation where dramatically limited participation in the market diverted that money to the general fund so you can do what you want with it. What I saw happening there, because I worked with several clients over the course of this whole process, because we're like, okay, we're going to keep going anyway, was that the law came back being the opposite of what the ballot initiative that passed by 74 percent 
of the vote looked like. And so everybody was building these businesses based on their idea of what the market would be based on Initiative 65. But once it was overturned and the House bill, I was HB 2095, maybe somebody will correct us <laughs> if uh, we're wrong. Uh, you know, by the time it came out, it was the opposite. Uh, all yeah, these but there's still a bunch of people doing it. Yeah, oh, Brad, yeah. And Brad, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard this happening in government before. This is weird. Oh, it's the state of Mississippi. I mean, I it, it, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm totally being facetious. That, that was okay. But was this a matter of, you know, you just got bugged? Or was this a matter that once you drilled down, the economics of being in that mode? market was no longer viable. The latter, actually, and specifically because the devil's in the details, as you know, Jarbo, right? Yeah. You, you got about a couple of million people in this state, and the household income annually is in the mid-30s. So we're talking about a small amount of households with a small amount of cash. Instead of limiting licensure, they asked to receiving cash by saying that you had to put these dispensaries into commercially zoned real estate with some pretty stringent setbacks to daycares, nursery schools, and you know all of those things where children are going to be at. And that sounds all fine and good. And I'm all about protecting kids and proper utilization of real estate. But in a state like Mississippi, most of the state's unzoned completely. There's a handful of municipalities and towns that actually have some zoning. Those are, so you have a few little strips of commercial real estate strip malls in a few different places that actually have commercial zoning. The rest is unzoned. And so the owners, landlords of these real estate strips actually control the access to the market because you can grow it if you want, but somebody who can file a business license in that commercially zoned real estate that's in a town that people are going to come to that's got parking, they control the market. We saw that in Seattle, in the city of Seattle, with all the problems Greater Washington had. There were a handful of families that were strong in commercial real estate that controlled access to dispensary licenses in a good bit of Seattle. Uh, but I mean, that's how Mississippi's working out. So everybody's going for it. But now the market's smaller. All right. They well, the redefined. market was always going to be small. It was never going to be oh, bigger. Yeah. Now it's tiny. Yeah. Well, yeah. So to kind of so we're not too side too much inside baseball here. So basically, it wasn't economically feasible uh, at the time. I'd heard when we were talking to you off camera the last time we recorded, the, the alternative was probably Michigan. So, because uh, you had knew a couple people up there. So how did it transition from Mississippi to Michigan and REC? Well, it was really just kind of going back to my comfort zone because being a Mississippi guy that went out to California early on and then went to Washington for the REC market, after going through all of the trials and tribulations of emergent med market and 
a lot of the dialogue there, it comes down to moralistic type things of is cannabis good to have in the community or not? And to me, I'm so far beyond that debate. You know, it's like I said, I was working the Michigan project in the background as a backup in case Mississippi went pear-shaped. And, you know, I was kind of glad I did. And it's like I started having split personality of like when I talked to the people in Mississippi, it was like lunacy. And when I talked to the people in Michigan, it was, you know, orderly, systematic. Well, let's backtrack, though. When did you start talking to people about Michigan? Oh, man. Actually, in 2016, I came up here and looked at the medical market, did a feasibility study, and determined that it, I needed to wait for it to go wreck. And so when Why? the uh, market size, um, uh, being limited to 72 plant count grows doesn't make sense for the way I like to farm and set up businesses. Anytime you've got such a so superficial... Like a caretaker system? Yeah. Caregiver, okay. they called it up here. 72 plants was your cap, but you kind of do what you want with that. And so I decided back then that, you know, that, that I wasn't interested in the market till it went wrecked to where you could do more plant count. And so I started talking back to some colleagues up here I've done work off and on with since 2015 that when Mississippi Supreme Court overturned the ballot initiative, I was like, oh man, I think I need a backup because this may go real bad. So I started talking about them again back in last June. So really 12 months ago. So was this like you found these folks on Craigslist? Oh yeah, yeah. In the uh, missed encounter section. You well, know, no, no, saw... but uh, <laughs> You got to give me a little story on how you met these guys. Oh, totally. Well, one gentleman, uh, Phil Mitrovich, I met him back in 2015 when I first moved to Denver. We got put on this kind of party tour bus together that was this group that was looking at putting in a greenhouse project in Reno, Nevada together. They were trying to put together an ops team and some developer and stuff, and we both ended up on this thing and we hit it off. Uh, he was a young fella transitioning from assisted living center construction and looking to get into cannabis specific construction. So I decided that the project that we were on the bus to vet out wasn't exactly my cup of tea. I passed on it. He decided to go for it, uh, fit what he was looking to do. And we didn't work together on that project, but we worked together on two or three projects a year, every year since, you know, he as a consultant doing developer and construction stuff, myself, you know, as operations and system design. We have been working together on all kinds of projects in various states, Los Angeles, you know, Nevada, various. When both of us kind of got our wings clipped from the traveling gig with COVID and he got on with a construction group here in Michigan that was doing some large-scale projects, concrete-based, and they approached him of wanting to get into the cannabis business and learn about building uh, cannabis greenhouses and all kind of work. He's like, hey, my colleague uh, who I've done a good bit of work with, he's actually wanting to plan something out. We're working on something for Michigan. You want to look at it? And so we start sharing it a little bit more. 
we started putting things in front of the lawyers to try and look at the right structure and lawyers like, hey, this is looking great. In fact, I've can let me introduce you to this other group that just got this parcel of land rezoned and licensed. Turned out they needed some operational help. Is that a so, fancy word for funding? Oh no, actually not. <laughs> they had they had a good bit of funding and we so had funding. When you say, so when you threw that operate when what was the term? Operation operational help. Yeah. Okay. And that means how to run a commercial grow. Um no. All right. Expertise. All right. Exactly right. Because Troy Wallace, one of the the member of the group that they thought was going to be the one to be able to run operations, he had enough sense maturity to raise his hand and say, hey, look, I'm not the guy. I understand what it takes, but I haven't done it before. We need to get some people in here actually understand and are familiar. And so that's kind of how the two groups came together. And what's beautiful is both of them had investors already committed and attached. We had to kind of balance things. We had to give some people back money, actually. You know, that's a good thing. And that's not American, we, Brad. Oh, it's not, but it, you know. <laughs> it's also not cannabis. What are you guys, freaks? You're exactly. giving money back to the investor. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Most most of the time, it only flows one way. Right? Uh, yeah, very <laughs> rapidly. Yes, it, it worked out good. It, it took a while. I mean, I thought this was process would be done by Thanksgiving. Then I thought it'd be done by January one. It took end up all the way into May to get everything finalized and closed. But it was all good. You know, I wouldn't rush it another day you know i think it took as long as it needed to and who's the other part of your your merry band of brothers your your ag guy yeah yeah gabe adams he's amazing fella he actually was the head grower on that project in reno that phil did that's how they met and he got that project operational and profitable and had gone on to do some other things since then because that that project ended up selling from one ownership group to the next and then to a third and they had like phil and i kept in touch always looked for something to get back together on uh, a project to do so like you say we were able to get the merry band of brothers uh together here and you know three of us have been doing work off and on together for six seven years eight now my gosh COVID makes it all blur and one of us Troy he's new to the team but actually pretty amazing to have somebody new on the team who's got a good bit of business experience legacy cannabis experience as a consumer and enthusiast and he asked questions that you wouldn't ask if you had a lot of experience and it kind of gets you to look at things from a different angle. And, you know, when you get all four of us together, it's, it's amazing how little can get past us. I'm going to have to put in a disclaimer here. The old ham farmer has to put in a disclaimer. How do you pronounce the name of your company? Athon. Athon. Athon uh, kind of flew me up here, up to Michigan last weekend to kick the tires. And I will have to admit I was not even guardly optimistic. I had no idea. But I think the one of the things that did give me, make me guardly optimistic 
was the fact that you guys had a track record together and had a track record uh, for years. Uh, one of the things I think it really plagues cannabis companies is that all of a sudden you go out and you grab a bunch of strangers, you throw them in a room, and then they accomplish a bunch, make a bunch of money, and play nice. And then they're to their own devices. Uh, it was really interesting to be able to see people confident enough to uh, ask hard questions. Because quite frankly, I got hard questions asking me and it was just like, okay, this is refreshing. So how long have you been dwelling on the Michigan market? And I guess the big thing is, how do you see the Michigan mar recreational market? Well, I've been thinking about it a good bit. I tell you, the first time it came on my radar at all was before I left Mississippi to go back to California the second time in 2009. And I had a buddy of mine that I'd communicate with. He was a grower in Western PA saying, hey, let's go to Michigan, man. I was like, man, I don't know about that, man. California is cool. I want to go to California. So I went to California. And, you know, after I did that thing for a while and transitioned to the rec market and was in Colorado, I looked at it again back in, it was either late 16. Yeah, I think it was late 16. They said caregiver system. And I was interested and I was really interested in it by the balance of the people, the economy, the kind of the harshness of life and the mellowness of life, it all just kind of lines up for a really good cannabis market. And I've always felt good about it. But like I said, at that point, they didn't have rec yet. And so now when Mississippi, the whole going back home and going to do a med market and see it into a rec market, hopefully, you know, pulled out from my eyes, like, I'm just going to a good rec market. All right back to the short list okay michigan let's reanalyze and it didn't take long for me to realize hey people can complain about any market oh don't go there it's tough it's oversaturated it's this that and the other thing hey you know business is tough cannabis uh, business <laughs> really the cannabis business is tough damn yeah what i like about it is you got just shy of 10 million people here that all have jobs or access to jobs and a lot to do outdoors, which drives cannabis consumption. There's a love for the outdoors that goes hand in hand with cannabis. They've got a harsh winter they have to deal with. Cannabis makes harsh parts of life just not as bad. Makes being cooped up with your relatives indoors a lot more fun if you're giggling and puffing a joint with each other than you know, just wondering how long it's gonna be for the snow melts. And you know, in all honesty, there's a large alcohol consumption up here and, and almost. <laughs> so, yeah, now that I think about it and, and they drink a lot, too. <laughs> exactly. And hey, look, in Colorado, pretty quickly, uh, alcohol lost 40 percent of its sales. Didn't take long for it to lose 60 percent. People don't quit drinking. They just don't have to drink as much when they can get some good pre-rolls. Right. Okay. Well, all right. Well, we're going to backtrack just a tad bit because I really am wanting to try to, to get in perspective the Michigan market. How many cannabis markets you've worked in California, Washington State, Colorado, up in Canada? 
What are Massachusetts, the Hawaii, yeah. Nevada, Oregon? Yeah. All right, now you're starting to sound like a Johnny Cash song. Uh, uh, <laughs> but but as you look at it, are there any things that are unique to this particular recreational market? Yeah, there is. Um, there's no prescriptive um, limitation on any license. There's no gotcha built into anything. If you want to do something, there's a permit to pull and just write the check for it. And it's not one size fits all. There's nested gradations. So you can pull a cultivator license at this level, a processor license at this level, retail at this. Only thing you can't do vertically is delivery. If you're getting down the public road, that's a third party contractor, but that's just de-risk. That's not a limitation to business, right? And so that's what I think is wholly unique to Michigan is there's zero restriction to just pulling the permit and getting in the business, whatever facet you want, whatever aspect of it. Michigan was actually the very first to do a micro cultivator permit. You can't own anything else if you choose to exercise this, but you can have a storefront, grow your plants in the back of it, process, and the license is very economical. I'm talking like sub $10,000 to get that license. It's 125 plant cap. It's a true micro license, but hey, that's a great business for one person. Uh, I'm sorry, people. 125 plants will keep you busy. Uh, oh yeah. What, what, I, what I was trying to get though at Brad was not so much the business environment as like, okay, like I noticed that people on the East Coast, I like their... <laughs> Uh, petrol-tinged cannabis, big time. I mean, they love the SIRDs, the NYCDs, all the stuff, you know, like a chem dog, the stuff that's got that thing. You work in these different markets, right? And they yep. have a favorite. What do you think? I, I know it's early because you guys have not produced flour. That's going to be coming up here in a few months. But where do you see that the market is? What are the, oh, let's put it better way. What are the tastes of the Michigan cannabis consumer? Kind of the same thing as everywhere else, man. They're just a certain number of months behind California social influencers, man. It's like you even hear about people going to places of land race production now and they're growing cookie strains. It's like the, the California genetics that get pushed out and popularized on social media are the kind of the tastemakers for the cannabis world. Now, oh my goodness, whoa, 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 Sparky, come on now, California for the world, or is it they got the reputation for doing it when you think about how many stuff has come out of Seattle? Exactly, it's the reputation and the image and the branding, it's kind of like tied up in uh, like LA being film culture and stuff too, it's just Cali makes it look cool. They know how to stylize and do that graphic and marketing. And hey, I'm going to throw this in there as a cannabis professional. They still don't have near the paperwork those of us in rec state, normal rec states do. They're starting to gripe about track and trace. But Cali had time to make it cool because they weren't having to hide. They weren't having to get ready for winter. And they had a lot of creatives. 
and I think that because if you look at it, like I know what you mean, the cycles, the regional difference, the East Coast was fuel, Cali was more OGs, and you would see these seasonal variations and like citrus varieties that would come around every few years. But then when California came out with the cookie strains and then when the cookies kind of led into all of the food base, the sherbet, the wedding cake, the <laughs> wedding crasher, like oh, Instagram took hold, man. And like that's still driving a lot of the thoughts and the processes now. So in Michigan, are there any local favorites? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely get local favorites. But what I'm seeing is those are still being traded in the private market. And you don't hear about them as much. The stores seem to have a lot of what's brought in from other places. And having not been living up here, but for about a month now, I am just now getting into a lot of these local circles and seeing it because the the kind of the legacy cannabis culture is still participating mostly in the private market up here. And I think that that's a lot of the so what, uh, half the people in Michigan still getting their weed in a Ziploc baggie? Probably more than half. <laughs> okay. It's, yeah. And right. th that, that's kind of where we're at now. It's, it's you go in these dispensaries, they feel like imported culture, most of them. I, I noticed that, yes, it did seem like they, you know, I only went into a few of them uh, just to kind of look around. You had the apple approach, and then you had the little bitty mom and pop thing, which is small as possible and the cheapest place they could get. But you didn't get that they had their what their God, what their dispensary culture was down yet. I mean, you know, it, it was it was interesting. You guys talk about what you're thinking about growing, or is that like ultra well, proprietary? It's not that it's ultra ultra secret. Um, or proprietary what what we're going to do is definitely put some good classics and good modern market exposed stuff together for our initial strain offering you know list so that we can really just get the system commission get the greenhouse going get the processing what i'm planning and going to hold close to the vest is i've got many rounds left of breeding and breeding plants because that was really my passion prior to getting into the legal permitted side of things was breeding different varieties of cannabis and I've, we're going to once we have everything established and moving and functioning we're going to be breeding continually to bring our own proprietary stuff to market but it's hard to really even say with certainty what that's going to be until you get a feel for the new facility, how plants grow in it year over year. Yeah, I know varieties that will bring in for this trait or that trait, but the hybrids we make out of that are yet to be well, determined. Uh, well, all right. Now, are you making hybrids because you can or are you making it because you want to meet certain production goals? I think you make hybrids because the vigor of an F1 hybrid is the biggest insulation against pest and disease load. So you're going to, you're going to have IPLs. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I got to explain that eternal breeding line IBLs. So I didn't yeah. get too insider on that. But totally. 
And so, the F1s, they just have so much bigger. They do. Head. I mean, yeah, if you can get them far enough apart to where they, you get that, I've seen some fantastic stuff. So, okay, but all right, we're doing going to go on this more towards you. How are you guys going to make the decision on what you grow? A lot of the decision gets made for you by what roots well and grows well in your climate and facility. Okay, it's like you look at this like a big pie chart. There's all the cannabis strains in the world. Okay, the worst thing you can do is try to grow something based on the finished product outcome in somebody else's facility somewhere else, right? Okay, that's kind of erroneous. So you look at what all will grow well in your facility, your climate with your crew and your operation. Now out of that, you need to make a balanced suite of strains, you know, at least eight or nine, maybe push it up to a dozen or a baker's dozen of strains so that you can get out there and people who like you as a person, your company, your product can have some choices and kind of stay in your range, if that see, makes sense. See, I have a theory about that that's kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people in cannabis. Lay it um, on me. I don't think that people out there should dictate. I think it is the person who decides to grow it, their personal taste, what they think is good should override everything. Because my analogy is wine, right? You got these guys and they know what they want to make. They know they want to make the best Malbec. And one of the things that gets me is to get in here and it's like, no, it's your, to me, if you're a true, really good at cannabis, it's your personal taste. It's what you think is good. Because quite frankly, if you're good at this, your taste is better than 97% percent of the people buying it. Because you're buying the grower. You know, I guess I come at it from a little bit of a different way of like, you You ever seen that movie, The, uh, the Fabulous uh, Mr. Fox or The Fantastic Mr. Fox? Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Okay, so it's basically this animated movie uh, about this fox that's breaking into these three farms there side by side. And he, each one of the farmers is the best at growing his product for the market. One of them chickens or goose or something, right? And each one of the farmers lives completely off of food made off a of byproduct of their agricultural crop they don't have a market for. The kind of growers, once you get really good, I've seen are a bit eccentric, right? And their tastes are going to be <laughs> well, a little a little bit different. And right. And like some of the best growers I knew, what they smoked was the small, loose, leafy buds that weren't good enough for market or something like that. So it's like there's another component to that beyond what you like and what you like to smoke. What but you like to but okay. But aren't you always then chasing what the the bud of the month is? Give me an example. Huh? Okay, that's what I'm saying is that my whole point is, is uh, I've been selling products for six years, right? People are always looking for something new. It doesn't mean it's better. They're always looking for something new. And at some point, there has to be people, you know, it's just like chocolate, any other connoisseur thing. You're buying that guy that makes it. When you buy a really great bottle of bourbon, 
you're buying that that person that master distiller and that's the whole thing you mean there's like moonshine you could have fantastic moonshine or really horrible moonshine and i think one of the things that we're going to have to do in this business is start saying this because okay i got five companies right and they all put out a really good product okay what's the thing that brings it over i know that guy who works for that company consistently puts out the best weed. And to me, you can't get there unless you have your, you in that. It's like a great chef. You go to a restaurant, you can go to a lot of restaurants, but you're going for the damn chef. No, there's an the aspect to that. Uh, I really, I really agree with, and I think that we can work on building that concept out because what the component that has to be added in there is the uniqueness of the endocannabinoid system and the utilization of cannabis by individuals varies and the effect is varied on us. Um, you go back to bourbon and the distinctness comes from what you do in the process where with cannabis, the strains distinctness come from a genetically predisposed potential chemotype and then that overlays with an individual's unique endocannabinoid system so we just got a couple of more variables at play that make the individual growers specific desires not as applicable as the chefs or the master distillers however i will back up and say i buy the grower I don't care the strain. And okay. that's my point. And that's my point exactly. We have done too much. I, my personally, it's just like if we find just the right variety. No, you can have a crump. I mean, I'm serious. Unless genetics are just pure crap and, and, and give someone the bet and then have a novice grower and give them the best damn genetics in the world. And I guarantee the person with mediocre who's a really better grower is going to give you something better and 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 and, and so my whole point on this is as an industry how do we grow where it's like one how do we do like it's fine food how do we get to that next step and let unless we start you know like i said looking at it a little bit different than you know it's like oh no i mean let's face it you had the same variety white, white widow and you had nine people growing it they're not all going to get results, but they've got the same genetics. Oh, yeah, exactly. And you kind of, the thing is, it's just a little bit more complex than we would desire it to be. Is because, it? yes, when you what? take it, when you take it to the next level. But why is that any different than taking a grape out of one field to another? Well, listen to the angle that I was about to propose is okay let's say you take the novice growers out of the conversation right. and everybody in the room is mastered the only thing they're talking about is varieties okay so as soon as like we're we're in a situation now where cannabis is plagued by a lack of knowledge and experience. So novice grower versus expert grower is a big thing right now because there's just too many projects, right? But like if you zoom out and you take all the novices out of the room, it's just experts, they're talking genetics 
and the implications of the output of the product and the growing of each and how dramatically different they are. So I think you have to have everything lined up well, you know, and I will always buy from a good grower instead of a novice grower because I can taste and smell and see the difference. However, um, I don't want to smoke the only cut he likes to smoke, okay? I want to smoke a lot of different varieties grown by that good grower and other good growers like but, it. But see, but that's where I'm talking about the trap. And, and it is. We're, we're, I grew with a guy who was, what do you want to call him? That's not probably a good term. Seed whore or whatever. He was always looking for another variety. And then, because I would grow it, and then I would put it in a freezer. And every once in a while, I'd bring some stuff out for a couple of years. We'd sit there, and he'd go, wow, that's pretty good. What is that? I said, well, why aren't we growing that? Because you want to start growing something else. And that's what I'm, my, my frustration is. Why do we have a gazillion variety? You know, I think a lot of it comes down to how much phenotypic variation you get when you start doing disorganized breeding and it kind of just turns into a kaleidoscope and people start chasing colors you know that's why like i was telling you like with my breeding plants i'm doing here at athon i know specific goals and programs i have mapped out so then when you hit that point around like f3 uh, to F5 when everything starts to get topsy-turvy and you get a bunch of weird phenos coming out, you can kind of see through the kaleidoscope and stay tracking where you want to get. Yeah, I, and, I, and, and, I, and I, gosh, it seems like I'm giving you a hard time here and I don't mean to, It's because uh, basically I kind of went off on it, but it's like, at what point do you think you're there? And is our, our growers, our companies going to have enough confidence this is what we think is good. This is what we're going to put out. And because we think it's good, we know you will too. Well, I think that that comes down to a function of how much time they can actually spend really thinking about that. Because, you know, the genetics, very little research, like most of the projects I see, there's so much minutia into facility build out, equipment, personnel there's not much thought gets put in genetics. It ends up somebody, the original grower or grow consultant or somebody brings in some genetics and the, somebody says, are these good? And they're like, yeah, it's the best. And so like, we've got the best genetics. Now it's a stagnant thing. We've got it forever. We don't have to worry about that, but that, it's not like that. It's something you're always working on. Well, the, what I'm wondering is it the nature of the cannabis business. It's like, I, I know this is kind of off track, but like with CBD, right? People made a bunch of money in CBD and then they weren't making as much. So then they were looking for the next thing. And it's always it. And I think part of this with cannabis is, and I'm talking about just the whole industry, is that we're always looking for that next big thing that'll give us a little bit of an edge so we can have a hot streak and sell a bunch of a product. I mean, that the broader thing that's happening with society in general, you know? Yeah, but I mean, no, especially though in cannabis. I mean, it's like people throw products out there having done no market research. I mean, it's just like, uh, we're looking at this one product because we're in Tennessee, right? 
And he, this person has a card out that's H, uh, HHC, it's THCO, it's THCP and D8, and they just mixed it all together in a cart. And it's just like, they're putting it out there because, oh, that's new, that's different. My one hope is, is that at some point the cannabis business can start being a little bit more secure, that we don't always have to keep chasing. You know, I think that's going to come with maturity as a culture, just going back to it, because I mean, you look at Hypebeast, Nike shoe drops, people chasing this, that, and the other thing. It's kind of something that's rampant throughout. And since cannabis is kind of new and it can be complicated if you make it that way, it's just kind of a really glaring example. But, you know, I think when I first got out to California, all the big cultivators were growing almost essentially nothing but SFVOG, maybe a little bit of Sour D, and LA would soak it all up. You know, there were some guys sending stuff east, but you could, LA would soak it all up in the Bay Area. And then when the cookie strains came in and when the cuttings got spread around, they spread around broad mites and you know, everybody, everybody <laughs> went into turmoil. And it's been, and because now everybody's got bugs, everybody's got viroid load, everybody's got systemic fungus, people are bad as, battling legacy pesticide and moms, and you got all this stuff. Of course, you're chasing something new because what you got is road hard and put up wet. You know, it's kind of that quick sugar high instead of doing the work to get a big hunk of protein. Yeah. You, do you mind talking a little bit more, more about Athon? Sure, go for it. Well, let's tell everybody what you're going to do is you're going to try to do a, a vertical operation. You're going to try to grow, process, and then uh, to some extent, maybe even have a couple retail shops eventually, right? That's exactly right. And I think we're going to go beyond try. We're going to do it. Let's get the cultivation and the processing into market ready product done and functioning. You know, know we can do that and do it well and the personnel's trained to do it. And then layer on more of that verticality as it makes sense. The good amount of retail partners and we can stay just selling wholesale into the uh, to retail partners. We may stay that way, but most likely We'll end up uh, getting some retail presence as well, even if it's mixed in with selling wholesale to retail partners. So that's kind of the goal. You know, there's a lot of people out there who get like really kind of big for their britches and say, oh, we're going to be vertical and have the best of everything, this and that. And it's like, yeah, that's a, a great potentiality. But we're going to start with getting stuff ready for the retail market and see basically how many more people we want to manage and onboard. Because if you think about that, everything you do in the industry, that's employees you have to onboard, manage, deal with. And, you know, the more employees you manage and deal with, the further you get away from the cannabis plant. That's kind of why we all got into this. <laughs> it was originally. Um, it seems, so like I said, you've been a bunch of part of these. You have and we all have, we've all sat across from table and talked to people who swore up and down they were gonna make us rich. Um, what, when you started putting this together, what started making you feel better and better about the project? None of the owners were talking about flipping the business. 
they were all talking about uh, owning it for the long term. You know, I was really tired of the, we're building it to flip it. You know, what's the spin? What's the story? Because that just detracts from actually building something to perform well. How important do you think it is that the participants have been, been beat up a few times before they joined this endeavor? Oh, it's critical. It's critical. All the way up and down from the investor to uh, GrowTech that you hired to do some basic work. I mean, I always like to say the best entry level employee was either raised in a very, very harsh northern climate or they have been to prison because they actually... <laughs> Yeah, they actually understand what a hard day is, what a bad day is. You know, you get somebody fresh out of prison, man, they will never come to you and say, this is the worst day I've ever had. I was defoliating for six hours, you know? So, you know? Uh, so a Yankee prisoner is your best bet. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, some, somebody like raised in northern Wisconsin or like north Minneapolis, St. Paul, that just got out of doing like three years, you know? That's so, but that, but right there, real quick, because we're going to start trying to wind this thing up gradually. I do think, though, that's the biggest thing is that people don't realize how hard work cannabis is. And oh, it's how, tough. And how at times it can be very hot. You were talking about cold weather. You also got to find some that don't mind working in 90 degrees and 90% humidity too. Uh, but that, I think that's the biggest thing is that it's, it is hard work. It is for those people who try to start a cannabis business, the realization that the, the cannabis can always take more than you can give. And that mm -hmm. learning that work relationship with it, it's hard to do. Step, uh, once again, I'm included you much and i feel bad about that oh, that's okay i mean you guys are michigan buddies now i get it um, <laughs> but i have, I have one quick question based on brad that you feel great about everybody being in it for the long haul where do you see athon in five years oh right here i think what we're going to do is through kind of the natural approach we're going to build out what we've got going with our greenhouse and processing facility kind of overbuilt the veg. So I think by five years from now, we'll have some expansion into some outdoor for some sun grown product, real low carbon footprint. We probably will do some kind of joint venture strategic alliance with some small indoor producers be able to get some of our hybrids and genetics into a completely controlled environment to be able to bring that to the product matrix. But I think we'll, at that point, five years, we'll have, that's where Athon will be. Great. Sounds good, man. Thank you, Mark. Brad, this is the shameless self-promotion part of this. How can people get a hold of you and how can people start to keep track of this journey? I think what we're going to have to do is in order to keep track of the journey, I'm going to have to twist your arm into letting me bring some of the guys from Athon back on once we can talk about our social platforms and stuff like that. Um, as far as getting in touch with me, uh, just shoot me an email. Uh, it's brad at uh, pandaleaf.com is the email address we've got set up. That's one brand we're looking at putting together, but 
honestly, I picked the email because you don't have to spell it to people. It's like Panda and Leaf together, you know, Athon <laughs> or so many of these things, you know. Uh, so, yeah, just email me at brad at pandaleaf.com and stay tuned to Tennessee Homegrown because I'm going to uh, bother Jarbo until he lets me bring some of the guys back on here in a bit. Okay. Uh, Mr. Stepp, what are you doing? What's your schedule here? In the well, next I, uh, I arrive in Nashville on uh, Sunday. Cool. To, uh, start on the lovely Country Music Association Festival show. So I'll, I'll be there on into late July. You got a name drop about South Park? Uh, that's, uh, that's an August gig. Yeah, I'm doing the uh, South Park's 25th anniversary show that will be at Red Rocks there in uh, right outside of Lakewood, Colorado. So See, I don't care about you doing the Oscars and the Super Bowl. <laughs> I don't care about that. That is a cool gig. Well, when you think of Cartman, you definitely think of me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. the old hip farmer. And you have stumbled onto, like I said, Full Contact Cannabis. And we're sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown. Those lovely lugs at tnhomegrown.com. And as always, folks, keep one eye on the market and the other eye on the weather. And thanks a bunch. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com. Howdy, folks. This is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer. And I just wanted to thank all you people that have been listening to us, downloading, and also heading on over to our sponsor, Tennessee Homegrown, and buying their wonderful products. We can't do it without you guys, and we know that. And we will always listen, and we will always be there for you as far as our products and also information about our products. Tennessee Homegrown, once again, wants to thank all of you wonderful folks for listening to our podcast and buying our products.